Ladies and gentlemen, the following program is produced professionally by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. I am the legendary Burl Bear, the man in the lawyer chair, Don Waldman. And for the first time I can remember, we have weather that's matching our book where it's cold, it's dark, it's dreary, it's rainy, and the title of the book is A Season of Darkness. Boy, that's what it's like here today. Murder of Marsha Trimble disturbed the people of Nashville, Tennessee. Murder of Innocence. And, and Phyllis Goebel, who uh, obviously co-wrote this and uh, teaches creative writing. And a lot of the writing style kind of demonstrates um, somebody who knows how to write. Well, that's important if you're going to do a book. Well, yeah, because it, m- most people think that a true crime book is like a documentary. And it's just presented that way with this fact okay. and that fact and whatever. And uh, that's not how they run. Uh, this reads as if it's the uh, completely a novel that's being recreated as it's a story. Yeah. You follow the whole story, and it develops over the, the chronology of the period of time. Well, it's a heck of a long period of time, too. We're talking about 30 years of frustrated investigation. The murder of Marcia Trimble. Well, give, our, give our audience the background on this story, please. How did you get caught into this? Okay, well, Marsha Trimble was um, a nine-year-old girl in Nashville in a very comfortable neighborhood, and she went across the street one day, February 25th, 1975, to deliver Girl Scout cookies and uh, didn't return. Um, a massive search uh, was in place for about 33 days, and then her body was found in uh, a garage in the neighborhood, really just about 200 feet from her door. Now, they searched that garage, didn't they? More than once. They did. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They did. Um, how did they, they miss it? Why did it take so long? It was a dark garage. There was no light in there. Uh, she was in the very back corner, the back left-hand corner, and um, I think they were, they, they looked for her, and um, we're looking for a missing person, looking for a live girl for a while, ah. and uh, called her name. And I, did, I just don't think anybody ever went in that dark back corner. They may have moved some things around. They did. I mean, they they continued to go in in there probably and move move some things around up at the front, but nobody ever got in that dark, cold back corner. But they finally did. And what they found was, unfortunately, the little girl had been murdered. Yeah, I mean, your, your chapter one title, A Parent's Worst Nightmare, is really what this is about. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I, I can't imagine anything worse than, uh, than what the, the Trimble parents went through. It's just the concept of a child just, I'm going next door for a minute, I'll be right back, and never see the child again. Exactly. The impact of this on the city must have been absolutely horrendous. Well, it was. It was. It was terrible. The this whole city uh, began to to look for her. I mean, there were as many as a thousand volunteers at uh, one time, and um, in, in addition to the officials who were looking for, really, the the city just embraced Marcia Trimble. I mean, she. She just became a child that belonged to our city. And that's that's why for 34 years, this case was in the minds of Nashvillians. And for the, imagine the, the horrible frustration, not only of law enforcement, but the parents, the friends, the family, and the city itself, of not having resolution to this for an entire generation. It's just uh, so upsetting. Phyllis, how do, you, how do you go from writing poetry into becoming a true crime investigator and writing a book like this? Well, I I think uh, writers just write what uh, what they have the opportunity to write, and this one came on the the heels of another true crime that I had written about Janet March, who was a missing person whose body was never found, but her husband was convicted of her murder a, a decade after it occurred. And Doug um, asked me about 
working on this, and I, I was glad to do it. I, um, I think a true crime is different. There's a lot of research, but you also have to make the story read well. You have to make people care about the characters, and that's really not too different from fiction, which I write a whole lot more than poetry. I'm not very much of a poet, but I'm... <laughs> no. I, no, but I was commenting before you got on the air because we had some technical problems that the book is so well written, it, it reads like a novel, even though it obviously is not. Well, that's a great comp- compliment. Uh, we we didn't want it to just read like uh, a bunch of newspaper articles strung together. We, that's we almost exactly it. what I was saying. A lot of people think that a true crime book is going to be sort of a, a documentary of news clips, and nothing could be further from the truth. This is a, a story, a beginning, there's suspense, there's an end to it, and there's resolution, and it's, it's, a, great, it's a great story. A so, tragic well, story. A tragic story, obviously. Very, but very, very well told. What I find that really resonates, because I have a real soapbox on what we, John and I, call trial by talk show and indictment by soundbite. This fellow, Jeffrey Womack, who was the first suspect. Oh, true confessions. Fifteen at the time of the murder. Now, mm-hmm. tell us tell us about, about Jeffrey. This is the guy they glommed onto. He was the primary suspect. Well, Jeffrey lived down the street on Copeland, and uh, Marsha had delivered cookies to his house that afternoon. His mother had ordered cookies, and she delivered cookies, and uh, he had, did not have the money to pay her. And uh, evidently, she told her mother that uh, Jeffrey is going to come up and pay me for the cookies later. So that was one of their theories that she had met Jeffrey for him to pay for the cookies and he had done this. He also uh, came to the house that night. He heard police were looking for him and he said he'd been out searching for Marsha as everybody in the neighborhood was at that point. And um, he, he was kind of a punk kid in a way and, and, uh, he had uh, some obscenities written on his shoes, and, and the police didn't like the looks of him. And um, so they, they kind of thought, well, you know, this kid is somebody we need to look at. Well, Phyllis, and, he also was telling his, his friends that he had done it. Well, he did later. Later. After but that's not too bright. Huh? <laughs> and so bragging, sad. I might add. He didn't do himself any good. No, barely he, he not. Did, no. He, he was 15 years old. He didn't do himself any good. Um, and and it wasn't immediately that he began to kind of um, be the kind of the character that he had been made out to be. Uh, he, he didn't do that at first. But later on, when people said, did you do it? He'd say, yeah, I did it. And... He was a kid and and um, did not make good choices for sure, but police just focused on him. They would not look at at other uh, possibilities. Well, other than the fact that there was no DNA of his and no fingerprints. Well, this was the early days of DNA, though. Wasn't yeah, it? right, right. That there was no DNA analysis at that time. No. Uh, this is Doug Jones. Hi there, Doug. I point out on the woman kid, not only was there uh, no fingerprints, they had no physical evidence, period, uh, time to, to this crime. Well, what I keep thinking about in terms of this Womack kid is that even 20 years later when the crime still hadn't been solved and people were speculating and doing interviews, they would still bring his name up in terms of theory. Well, that's the McMartin School concept where, you're, no, 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 I don't care that they're innocent, they're still guilty. And uh, I keep trying to put myself in Womack's position that for 20 years later, after he's an adult, this must have driven him crazy. It, it was, it's terrible, and, and the deputy... Attorney General that prosecuted the final case last year uh, commented after the trial and said not only the Tremble family, of course, victims, but there are other victims in this case, including, you know, Womack and some other neighborhood boys. Did you have the opportunity of interviewing Womack? No, we never. Uh, his, his 
attorney was writing a book, and so we never got an opportunity to. His <laughs> <laughs> attorney was writing a book. That's great. <laughs> well, sometimes you have that, Don. You have dueling, uh, dueling publishers. <laughs> yeah, I interviewed oh. one of the attorneys you represented. What was that? We didn't... What was that again? I'm sorry, I missed that. We interviewed one of the attorneys that represented him. Ah. And what was his take on it? That, that basically, they persecuted the kid for 30 years. I, there was a, a police officer, senior police officer, that, that passed away earlier this summer in Nashville. And at the funeral, there were some senior uh, police officers that still maintain it was Womack. I mean, there's still a culture over in that police department that, that uh, uh, still believe it was Womack. Now, from what I understand, DNA samples were taken from uh, semen collected from Trimble's body, and that it wasn't right. stored properly. What did, what did they do? Put it in the closet or something? Well, when they when they took the the slides uh, at that point in time, and the, by the way, the the head of homicide, Lieutenant Kathy, at that time uh, had plastic gloves on. He sealed the area off. He really did a good job. And this is before, of course, the development of B DNA. And they did take uh, slides, and they sent them to Memphis to the lab, but they didn't realize that if you handle the slides and your DNA... Uh, <laughs> no, you know, pollutes it. Yeah. So those slides were stained uh, with other DNA sources. Oh. So that makes it almost impossible to separate out who's doing what to whom there. Well, very fascinating, and y'all might want to talk about this later when we get into the actual case. But it was a rare, rare bird indeed. The defense filed a motion in the, before the trial to have the slides admitted into evidence, and the defense argued that there was a proper chain of custody because they wanted to create, they wanted the slides, and they wanted the expert to have to testify, oh, there are all these different DNA profiles on the, in these slides to confuse the jury. And the judge allowed the stain, the, those slides to be introduced into evidence. So they wanted to create reasonable doubt. Right. Which is perfectly understandable. <laughs> I mean, if I, this sounds like the influence of the O.J. Simpson trial. Interesting. So here you have polluted DNA evidence that, that doesn't really show much of anything. They said that this Womack wasn't prosecuted due to a lack of evidence, but they never really came out and said he was exonerated or cleared or excluded. And as you said, there's still people who think somehow he and these other kids were involved, even though now, 30 years later, someone has been convicted. Right, and, and the, uh, uh, Deputy District Attorney Tom Thurman is excellent. You ought to have him on your show sometimes. I mean, he's, he's a hero down here. He apologized to Jeffrey Womack. He went and visited with him. And apologized. Did they write him a check? Uh, <laughs> good, great question. I don't think so. Boy, I'll tell you, if I was him, I'd ask for one. <laughs> well, but he was at fault in creating the problems himself. If you start confessing to a crime, you are going to become a suspect. Well, that, that, you know. that's, that's true. But of the, of the 250 people cleared by the Innocence Project, I think it was 25% uh, of them uh, confessed falsely. Yeah. Well, that's the old deal problem. You want to uh, face the the electric chair, the gas chamber, lethal injection, or you want to work out a deal? Take a pick, multiple choice. Right, you know, or you want to work out a deal for 10 years, 20 years, whatever it is. Yeah. Well, I've, well, I've got one for y'all, y'all the experts, but uh, I don't know if you picked up in the book or not, but the police, after she was found, and all of a sudden the police had huge pressure every day, I mean, the mayor was out there, the governor was out there, huge pressure. The police came up with this new theory that the murderer, that the garage had been searched, and that the murderer had brought the body back. Oh. Yeah, but oh, that yeah. was so contrary to the medical evidence. Was... Absolutely, it's contrary, but I mean, our reaction, I was a young lawyer at the time, was that was one of the goofiest things we ever heard. <laughs> that was the headline now, of the paper, Goofy Theory of Murder. That's that's another question, Doug. How did you get into this being a lawyer? Well, I, I don't... I've been practicing 35 years, and when I first started, just like all lawyers, I did a little criminal law. But over the years, I've represented a homicide detective uh, and know a great number of folks in law enforcement and the courts and... And I, I practiced law out near there in 1976, and 
it just fascinated me, and, and I was representing some of the cold case guys uh, when they created the cold case unit in Nashville. And so it was just, Phyllis and I, it was an opportunity for us to, to tell this story, and it's, it's an honor and it's an honor to have this book, but it, it's a sad, sad story. Oh, it's it's a nightmare. When did, the two, when did the two of you start working on this book together in point of time? I'm sorry, what did you say? When did the two of you hook up and start working on a book? What, what, t- we what point in time? We've been in a writer's group together for, uh, for, for years. And uh, three years ago, when... Um, Jerome Barrett was brought back from Memphis, and uh, he actually was charged in the Sarah Dupre murder at that time, but there were were rumors that it was linked, that uh, there was going to be a link to the Trimble murder, and we just just said, uh, yeah, this is a story. This is the murder mystery of Nashville. And uh, so many Nashvilleians have followed it through the years, and we said, we, we need to try to write this. And, and as I said, I had just finished another, another book at the time, and, and Doug asked me to work on it. And um, so, so we started. It's, we, work, we worked for three years. It was in 2007, in wow. The, wow. 2007 that we began. And we didn't know if Jerome Barrett would even be charged in the Trimble murder. We believed he would, uh, and he was a few months later. And then, of course, we didn't know. He had to go through the Sarah Dupre trial first, and then the Trimble trial. We didn't know if he would be convicted, but we thought he was. would. We, so, so you we started didn't. it on. We have to take a short 60-second break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Okay. All right. There are some things in life that just don't go together. But listen to this. You take one drop-dead gorgeous woman. You add an incredibly wealthy, handsome man. You put them together. They have all the money, clothes, jewels, drugs, alcohol they could possibly want. Well, then you throw in a Glock 9mm handgun. It's all good fun until someone gets killed. Fatal Beauty, the shocking true story of beautiful Rhonda Glover, who put 13 bullets from a Glock 9mm into her boyfriend of 15 years, Jimmy Jost. Oh, she said he was abusive. The friend said he was passive. Either way, he was dead. Fatal Beauty, available January 2011 from Pinnacle True Crime by Burl Bear, living legend true crime author, and trust me, he's brilliant, I know it, because I am Burl Bear, author of Fatal Beauty. If you own an iPhone or ride the plastic pony in front of Kroger, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application, the smoking, drinking, interrupting, did I say interrupting? 24-hour party that you follow. Now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio, like me. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week, now available at the iTunes App Store. And now, back to True Crimes with Burl Bear and Don Waldman. I am the legendary Burl Bear, the lawyer. We have two lawyers today. The man in the lawyer chair here is Don Waldman, our other lawyer, Douglas Jones. Stereo. Yeah, stereo lawyers. <laughs> Phyllis Goble, author of the brand new book, A Season of Darkness. It began with the brutal murder of pure innocence, the crime that uh, changed that town forever. The thing that's unusual here is that this is a classic cold case, and then all of a sudden up comes the Sarah Dupre case. How did that start to, and how did that tie in to the murder of the Trimble girl? Well, uh, you have to go back. Uh, the, the cold case detective, who's sort of the protagonist in the book, Bill Pridemore, had, of course, access to the old police files, and there was a detective, uh, and, we, and it was one of the neatest developments that Phyllis and I did in the whole book, was we discovered this detective, Diane Vaughn, who was really extremely rare for a female detective in Metro back in the late 60s, early 70s. Anyway, she had been assigned to the Prey case. 
And and real quickly, the timeline, February 2nd, Sarah Dupree, a Vanderbilt student whose father was a prominent physician at Vanderbilt, is found raped and murdered in her apartment over near Vanderbilt. February 12th, Vanderbilt security arrests Jerome Barrett, breaking into a Vanderbilt female girl's dormitory Mm. at night. February 16th, Judy Porter in her dorm room, and and the entire dorm was full that night, uh, is raped and assaulted by Belmont. Just right right around the corner from Vanderbilt is raped and assaulted. Uh, February 23rd, a lady by the name of Charlotte Chanson over on Fairfax near Vanderbilt and Belmont is attacked as she's going into her apartment and her and the assailant used a knife, cut her neck severely. Oh. He was hospitalized. But he, she beat him off with an umbrella and he ran off. And then February 25th, Marcia Tremble's abducted and murdered. March 9th, a lady by the name of Diana McMillan is assaulted and raped in the same area. And then Barrett's arrested on the 12th. What I'm leading up to, Diane Vaughn was assigned the Dupree rape case. Then she was assigned the Judy Porter rape case. She started putting two and two together, and then she assigned the Chanson case. And we've got a chapter in there called Dark Overcoat, Long Dark Overcoat. And the assailant, pretty much same M.O., and was wearing the same outfit, this dark overcoat, through all of them. And when he was arrested, he had the, he had the dark overcoat. Hmm. <laughs> Barrett, the, the guy needs some wardrobe advice if he's going to be a criminal. Boy. Right, right. Well, he uh, the bottom line on Jerome Barrett was uh, he was making a living during the week on burglaries, and then he was assaulted and raping young women on the weekends. And uh, but he confessed. <laughs> it's called a lifestyle. Confessed to the Judy Porter rape case at Belmont, and and Diane Vaughn got court orders and was attempting to time to all these others when the Tremble case exploded and literally made national news, and she was a female and not really part of the good old boys system, and she was placed way on the pecking order in terms of priority the Marsha Trimble case. Pridemore, 30 years later, finds Diane Vaughn's notes and files and starts focusing on this uh, Jerome Barrett, and that's how it started, and they went to get the DNA. He wasn't even in the CODIS system. They went to Memphis and got a court order and got the D, uh, got a blood sample from him and swabs. And uh, while they're working on the prey, and it turned out it also matched uh, the Tremble case. Hmm. Boy, I'll tell you, I, I still keep going back to Jeffrey Womack. I mean, they, they arrested this guy. <laughs> I keep going back to poor Jeffrey Womack because he well, was. He was, there were some homicide detectives that just wouldn't let it go. I mean, they arrest uh, the guy. The, the, and I, I was reading an interview with, uh, it was in the newspaper with uh, some of the detectives. And this is like, you know, 20 years after the fact, uh, going on with this whole theory of uh, of Womack and maybe two or three other guys and that the, the little girl was going to go meet him and uh, his hormones were raging out of control. All these things. And there was a motion to, to, to not prosecute him due to lack of evidence, but they did not come right out and say at that time, correct me if I'm wrong, no, he didn't, he couldn't have done it, it's not him. No, they don't do that. Well, he, yes, the, these things that they came out with, these ideas, they were they were really theories, but they, they couldn't prove it. They did um, a review. In 1990-91, the case had kind of been dormant for a a decade. Not that people had forgotten it, but they're just, after they had tried to arrest, after they'd arrested Jeffrey, but were not able to make that stick, and so he, he, it it never went anywhere. there just wasn't anything, any place to go with it for about a decade. And then DNA technology began to help forensic uh, analysis be part of forensic analysis, a new thing for, for police departments. And so they decided to take a new look at everything. The problem was they didn't really take a fresh look at everything. They just, they just, began to say here's 
how we may be able to prove that Jeffrey Womack did it. Yeah, but wasn't so, there composite sketches early on that didn't match Womack? Yeah, and the sketches, that's kind of something else, that uh, the sketches were based on some of Marie Maxwell's, uh, some things that she said, and Doug may want to talk about that because he talked to Miss Maxwell. Yeah, let's talk about her because she was very involved in the IDing, so to speak, of what happened. Marie Maxwell? Yeah. Yeah, yes. Uh now this is the person. This is the person that uh, supposedly Trimble left her home to deliver cookies to Maxwell. Right, and and Marie Maxwell's a very courageous lady, and and tried to work with the authorities, the police. Gave over twenty interviews and and uh, examinations, and uh, they they it got real twisted. To be candid with you, uh, they were asking questions and just basically leading questions to get her to say that it was Jerome uh, to say it was Jeffrey Womack that she saw in the, the driveway. But it, in truth, uh, February 25th in, in Middle Tennessee, it's about dark. Uh, she gets out of her car. She parks in the back. She's walking around to get her little baby out of the car seat, and she just glances over, and the, that particular kind of hedge between the two houses uh, was level with her uh, probably shoulder high and had, had uh, leaves on it. still had uh, evergreen leaves and uh, it's, it's questionable what she actually saw. She was very positive she saw Marsha Trimble and the cookie box and she was very positive she saw a, a tall, darker figure that was wearing a long dark overcoat uh, and, and I, the, you know I'm, we're asking the media about Marie Maxwell's testimony, uh, my comment about her testimony is that her first initial statement she gave to the police was exactly almost the same exact testimony that she made in, in open court in the case. And, and that's what she saw. And, of course, now, you know, 30 years, 33 years later, it all comes together and matches. Yes. Now, when the, the first hints that we may have a link here between the man in the long, dark coat who's doing these rapes may be connected to the murder of this little girl. That spark, that, that first glimmer that there may be a link must have caused a great deal of excitement. More yeah, than a glimmer, it was matching DNA. <laughs> yeah, it's a, look, it's pretty neat, and we tried to be as accurate as we could with it. Pridemore gets a call to go after the TBI and uh, he thinks he's just it's a routine meeting with a clerk out there and they uh, of course Pride Moore's the cold case detective heading up the investigation of both Dupre and uh, Trimble but he's going out there on Dupre that's what they're working on and uh, they meet him at the front entrance security does and says no you're not going to go to that clerk's office you're going upstairs they take Pride Moore up to the executive director's conference room and all the major agents and supervisors and the head of the labs, it's, it's a room full of people. And, and the director of the TBI tells Bill, uh, well, we've got, of course, a profile in case 77, whatever the number was, uh, and we have a, a match detective, on, and that's the Dupre case. And, and Primor says, you know, he's relieved and thanks him and everything. And then the director says, but... We've got more news for you, and uh, it's pretty dramatic. I would think. We also have a match, and and uh, we tell about that in the book. Yeah, in fact, I, I found it right here. It's on page 240. <laughs> <laughs> it says, we, we have a match in another one of your unsolved murder cases, the director said. Clearly, he wanted to make the most of this moment. It's 75-30512. We have a match with the evidence provided in that case and with Jerome S. Barrett. That's the Trimble case, of course. For a minute, no one said anything. <laughs> well, and, and as I said, it's the murder mystery uh, of the history of this city. Uh, it's just amazing. He must it's have not been. that the people were not interested in Sarah Dupre, and, and that one was even a little bit older because it occurred February 2nd, and um, Marsha Trimble's occurred February 25th. So uh, they were both, 
very cold cases. But um, this little girl, there was just something about this little girl that the city the city embraced and and a lot well, of you people got a nine-year-old girl and a girl scout you know her mother is the girl scout leader i mean what yes. could be more innocent in terms of a victim of course it's going to get this kind of attention right right that's that's sort of uh the whole idea of the the loss of innocence um you know the she was she was innocent and and it sort of marked a uh, a time when Nashville lost its innocence, too. And we talk about... This Jerome Barrett guy, from what we've heard about him so far on the show, has an interesting lifestyle. He's doing burglaries during the week and then raping people on the weekend. For years. And amazingly enough, getting away with it. I find that in itself rather astonishing that it took a while for them to link up that these rapes were being committed by the same guy. Does that strike you as a bit unusual? Well, like we said earlier, Diane Baum put it together, and they got a conviction. He admitted to the Judy Porter rape. Uh, But the powers to be in homicide just ignored what had been occurring in Nashville in February when they uh, worked on the Marsha Trimble case. It's almost incredible to... I mean, were, are you saying that they were so locked into their preconceived ideas of what happened and who did it that they were reticent to look at the new evidence? Yeah, it was happening at the same time. I mean, uh, Marsha's abducted February 25th, and they found her body 33 days later. Well, Porter is, I mean, uh, Judy Porter's raped on the 16th, and he's arrested on the 12th of March on another break-in. Listen listen to this one. I don't know if you read this or not in the book, where he's arrested. Uh, He's trying to break into a lady's apartment, and her boyfriend's a police officer. Poor choice, yeah. Yeah, she goes and gets a big pistol and pulls open the drapes of the the door, sliding glass door, and he's got his face up against the thing. It's pretty creepy. And she puts the gun up there. Well, guess what he does? That doesn't face him at all. He goes and breaks in a maintenance room at the apartment's laundry room to get a tool to break in anyway. He's coming in anyway. Wow. Jeez. Yeah, he's pretty bad. Uh, well, a, and on top of it, this, yeah, go ahead. In my rape case, he stayed in that girl's dormitory room for over an hour. And that freaked the police out because, you know, normally you're bad guys. They do whatever they're doing and they get the, you know, get, get out. the hell out of there, yeah. Yeah, and uh, this guy marched to the beat. He was a, he was a, he fought when he got back from Vietnam. He's on a Cobra helicopter unit in Vietnam, and we tell about all this in the book. But he gets back to Memphis, and he's there's no question he's committing burglaries and, and sexual assaults. Uh, but he's also prize fighting, bare fisted, where you know they just throw the money down in an alley and they get a big crowd up, and then that is rugged. And I went down there and sort of confirmed all that. Uh, That's some tough stuff right there. So this guy moved in a world of extreme violence, and nothing much seemed to faze him, not even a big gun put in his face. Nor did age of the victim seem to bother him. I mean, he was all over the place as far as age, from nine years old all the way up. And plus, he's in prison. He's bragging to the other guys, oh, yeah, I killed a lot of blue-eyed bitches. Yeah, and we had... uh, we were able to get his uh, prison file, and one of the things I found very interesting, he would have cellmates that were, y'all would describe as pretty serious records. I mean, hardball guys. They would go to the warden begging to be transferred. They were... <laughs> that they bad, were huh? Yeah, yeah. Jeez. Tough dude. I mean, I doubt there has been any psychological profile done on this guy, but he must be just out of his mind. He was on some kind of a tear in February and March of 75. He uh, just the, the and, and, you know, we really don't know much about him in the preceding months uh, after he came to Nashville. He had come from Memphis, as, as Doug said. But just to 
to commit all of those assaults and, and a couple of murders in just a matter of a few weeks. I, I mean, I don't know what was going on with him, but, but it, it's just amazing that all of that occurred in just a very short time. And even when this guy was in prison, Don, as you might have seen in the book, yeah. and I was just reading here where that even when he was in prison, as you mentioned, people begged not to be his cellmate, that he posed a great security risk to the Department psycho. of Corrections. In September of 87, authorities discovered a dagger in his cell. Two months later, he was caught beating another inmate. Eventually, he was placed in solitary confinement. His records were sprinkled with notations, 10 days punitive forgery, 30 days punitive possession of deadly weapon, 15 days uh, punitive for disrespecting uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, an officer. I mean, this guy is just the worst of the worst. Yeah. Did you have any occasion to investigate his background prior to his being in the service? Well, Fa- his uh, family, etc. Yeah, I mean, his family, uh, he, he went to a, a good high school in Memphis, Jeter High School. It's closed now, but in his family, I think his father had a farm. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just one of those... I, I can't explain. I do know. I can report this. He dodged two or three serious allegations of rape and murder in Memphis. Now they got him on a, a sexual assault, carnal knowledge of a minor down there. So this, so Marsha Trimble wasn't his first minor, but he was just uh, on a rampage. And and in defense of the Nashville, you know, Memphis is two hundred miles west of Nashville. But in defense of Nashville and our police department. He was out here at the main prison out in West Nashville, and they paroled him uh, in August of seventy, August thirty first, seventy four. They put him out on the streets. Didn't call any, you know. By the next February, it's like Phyllis said, he's on a rampage. And the rampage is almost an understatement. Now, as far as the, the family of the the murdered victim of the little girl, Virginia and Charles, by the time. The uh, this horrible, horrible person is is linked to having done it, which is like thirty years after the fact. Uh, did Charles passed away? By that time, did he live? Didn't live to see his. Uh... Charles Charles died um, in in the eighties, I believe. Um, Virginia, of course, is is still alive, and she testified uh, at, at the trial. She uh, lives now in Kentucky, about 60 miles from here. Uh, she has remarried. She's married to a, a very well-respected Tennessean reporter. He, of course, he's retired now, but he, uh, they actually met, I believe it was the 25th uh, anniversary of Marsha's death, and he was reporting it, and they met, and and they're married now. And so, she uh, she does have a different life now. She her son Chuck lives near them, and so she's very involved in his family. But um, obviously, it's it's sad that Charles did not live to see justice done for his daughter. Yeah, it is. How was how much? I'm assuming the media coverage had to be pervasive on something like this when the trial came up. Oh, it was uh, very, very pervasive. Uh, Front page, trials, I assume. The depraved trial too. Yeah, I mean it was to the point where they would just have routine motions, and it was uh, heavily covered. Oh yeah, if you go online, Don, there's an entire video library of coverage of this case it was so huge down there. No, I assume that to be the case. I saw some of it, but I didn't have time to do all of it like you apparently did. <laughs> well, I, I didn't <laughs> have that much time, but enough to go, oh, my God. I mean, this was like the biggest case. I mean, everyone was watching this. Everyone was on top of it because it had haunted this town for 30 years. And to finally have uh, this guy, this horrible, horrible person linked to this and finally have it resolved... I think people must have just been riveted to their their uh, televisions and their their newspapers, following this with with avid interest. Did you talk to the the defense attorney for Mr. Uh, Mr. Barrett, the guy in the long dark coat? Yes, uh, we talked to the. Of course, both cases, as you, as you understand, we're going to go up on appeal automatically. Uh, but we talked to uh, Mr. Haymaker in the Dupre case, and then the two public defenders. Uh, 
uh, Ms. Dykes and uh, Mr. McNamara in the Trumbull case. Yes, and they had a tough, you know, they had a tough road to hoe. I mean, there, there were some interesting issues. And, and the prey, for example, uh, they lost over the years. They lost the autopsy medical report. Oh yeah, the medical reports were missing. <laughs> yeah, helpful. which meant that, that the state. I mean, you know, you think about trying a lawsuit uh, with facts that occurred that long ago. It's difficult. And, and then suddenly, you don't have your report that that and, uh, regarding the cause of death. And the defense was screaming, "Where's the crime?" You know, what, that was one of their main defenses was prove that there was actually a crime here. And the medical examiner, Levy, did a good job in, in the photographs and, and summing it up that, that there's no question she'd been uh, death by strangulation and, and depraved. Uh, and then, like we've already talked about in Trimble, one of the interesting parts of it was uh, the stained, compromised uh, slides. But, of course... They had her blouse and other, and the blue jeans and other things where they could nail him on. Uh, there was enough there to make a profile and a DNA. Uh, so that didn't really slow him down that much, but that was a fascinating part of... Uh, well, also, this, this Barrett guy, of course, this, you can't always believe confessions, not even <laughs> Womack's bragging, but this guy admits and talks about having killed this little girl in a phone conversation from prison. And then also to another inmate that he gets in a fight with in jail. That uh, the the other convicts said that Barrett claimed to have killed four uh, blue-eyed bitches, is the phrase, as I mentioned earlier, and uh, pridefully took responsibility for killing, but he said he didn't rape the little girl uh, because there was no penetration, he said. Well, that's much better. Yeah, makes a big difference. <laughs> yeah, he, I guess... Uh... I guess that he just couldn't uh, couldn't keep from saying something about. I mean, you know, when it's interesting to me that when uh, prisoners that prisoners will talk in prison. I mean, I I would think I'd keep my mouth shut, but but they don't, and um, so that that probably hurt him too. But whether he had spoken about it or not, it would still have been a, a problem because of the DNA. Right, because you can't always believe jailhouse snitches anyway. Quite often they got deals cut. Well, you got major credibility issues, obviously, when that happens. Yes, they are you a convicted liar? Yes. Well, do you swear to tell the truth? <laughs> you got it right, bro. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a, a, a real common would... problem. Mm-hmm. <sighs> well, break a leg with it, but I got to tell you, this should be a motion picture or at least a TV show because this is an extraordinary story. It really well, is. thank you, and we'd love it if, <laughs> if that happened. You know, the cases like this that go on for, for so long, it was very similar to the, the case of Robert Lee Yates, the Spokane serial killer, who for years they had a homicide task force working on that case and just one dead end after another. And the bodies kept piling up. Yep, and it got to the point, you'll probably find this interesting, where the homicide task force got together and looked at each other and they thought that perhaps one of them was the one who was <laughs> I doing know it. That. I know that. You never shared that before. Yeah, they looked at each other and said, <laughs> it might be one of us. <laughs> Because we're not catching the person, and they're staying one step ahead of us, and so they all began suspecting each other wow. of uh, of being uh, of being being the one who uh, who did well, it. You know, one comment about how it became, as Phyllis talked about the, the murder mystery. At least this is the theory I have: is Barrett gets twenty five years for the Judy Porter rape, and so he's off the streets of Nashville, and and that sort of took. You know that took him out of the loop, and uh, so and then they're chasing down the wrong alley anyway, chasing the little kid teenager, and so it was like a void, a vacuum. Yeah, if he hadn't been put away, he probably would have done something would have, that would have brought immediate attention to. Oh him. yeah, he'd have kept going. My mouth or something, yeah. Well, this reminds me. Well, in fact, I was talking about this on the, on the way here today with my, with my my friend Barbara. 
There was a, a case out of New York. They did do a TV movie on this where a guy goes out for a run in Central Park and he has to go to the bathroom and he gets to the, the restroom and it's locked and he really has to go. So he goes in the bushes and a cop sees him and arrests him or charges him with like indecent exposure or peeing in the bushes or whatever the crime was. And when they have him down at the police station, they notice he fits perfectly the description of the photomat rapist who had been raping, you know, like seven different women. They charge him with the first, with one rape, which of course was devastating. He goes to the whole trial. He's found not guilty. He comes home and the police are there to arrest him for the second one. They're so focused on him, so well, convinced he he's... at first. They figured they had seven <laughs> chances to convict him. And I think it was about on the third trial that the real person couldn't keep themselves from doing it again and got caught in the act. And if you put the two guys side by side, they didn't really look the same, but if you gave a description, the description would be the same. Of course, it totally destroyed this, the guy's life. You know, he lost his family, his marriage, his business, everything. And they, I don't think they wrote him a check either. <laughs> well, sir, that's, I mean, that's kind of like Jeffrey, you know, it's... A, I, I don't guess he would like for us to say that his life has been destroyed, but it certainly was damaged by, because of all this. Well, as you mentioned earlier, there's so, still some people who won't, don't want to let him off the hook, even though this other guy's been convicted. It, it's just very hard for some of these uh, veteran policemen that uh, worked the case in the 70s to say, yeah, we were wrong. And, of course, there are questions that are, that have not been answered and will not be answered unless Jerome Barrett decides to answer them. But uh, people say, well, what was he doing in that neighborhood? And we, we don't know. We have our ideas. Uh, but, uh, there, uh, you know, there just there are questions that people still have. But that, to me doesn't take away from the fact that DNA proved he was there. Why, why he was there, exactly how it happened, only, only he could tell us. And he's not in any mood to talk right now. Yet. We'll see. By the way, there was a great line in the Dupree case uh, for the TBI agent that and, and did the workup on the DNA. In the Trimble case, they brought down the number one director of CODIS and Miss Luton uh, in the FBI DNA program, but in the Dupree case, they had an agent from the TBI here. He's a very competent fellow, and he had a great line in there. It might have been during cross examination. They asked him about, uh, you know, uh, uh, Barrett's was it Barrett DNA really owner? And he said, uh, under Miss Dupree's fingernails, there was more Jerome Barrett's DNA than Dupree's. <laughs> Just a scratched him a good one. Yeah. Where to from here? Any future um, books in the making? Any subjects you're working on? Well, let's, let's go first. Well, I'm taking a little break from true crime, and I'm just writing <laughs> this. Burned out from this? <laughs> uh, well, I've had two, two true crimes now, and that's um, taken about six years. And... Um, so I, I just really don't have anything right now that uh, that I want to work on. But so I'm doing this mystery. But Doug has a, another true crime in in the works. Oh, oh goody! On. What is it, Doug? Real briefly, uh, there's some really bad inmates. We have bad inmates down in Tennessee. Never heard that, that before. <laughs> uh, that were rated maximum security. Uh, transferred to a prison down on the Mississippi River named Fort Pilla, and uh, the warden down there had a real checkered past. He'd been the warden at Brushy Mountain, which is our bad prison up in East Tennessee in the mountains, when James Earl Ray escaped and when we had uh, some white sort of redneck racist inmates get pistols and execute a bunch of black inmates. Oh, wonderful. The same. Anyway, these two guys get transferred to Fort Pilla, and the warden immediately skips all the process and says you two are assigned to work on what we call the long lines or the weed chopping group outside the prison walls. What? And yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the next day, and they start plotting, and 
within this happens in July of eighty three, February of eighty four, they get the bright idea to join the black Muslims, even though they're white, which meant they got to work on Saturdays. They bought pistols inside the prison on a Saturday morning, February eighteenth, nineteen eighty four. They go out and uh, up the guards, escape, murdered a farmer in Brownsville, kidnapped his wife. What are they thinking? Yeah. Anyway, the family in Brownsville, uh, they hired me to sue the Department of Corrections and the warden, and we uh, were real successful. Yeah, I would and, imagine. And, and so it's a pretty interesting story. It's pretty rough. Phyllis has heard it all, but it's pretty bad. What, was there any rational or irrational reason why the warden put these guys in this position? Well, I'll just say this. The Attorney General, General finally admitted that he violated state policy and procedure. That's a tactful uh, way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the first chapter, very briefly, Phyllis knows this, the first chapter, the real bad guy in the book, Ronald Freeman, uh, murders his w- pregnant wife and her stepdaughter takes their bodies out in his boat outside of Knoxville, dumps them in, on this lake in the middle of the night, then goes and gets his girlfriend, buys beer, takes her out there, anchors the boat over the bodies, and has sex with her. Does she know what's good? Does she know that he's done this? No, 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 no. But a Knoxville jury gave him 198 years. That's not Doug Jones creating. That's the transcript. With time off for good behavior. That's the first chapter. It's horrible. That is really horrible. That's really severe. That's that's as bad as, I don't know if you're aware of this one, this is a Washington State case where this fellow murders his wife and his three kids and puts the bodies in a storage locker, leaves town, goes to Idaho, hooks up with another woman, and says, Honey, uh, I'm going to get a bill every month from this uh, storage facility up in Washington. Uh, please make sure you pay the bill. Kind of important, huh? Yeah. Well, after a couple of years, uh, she gets fed up paying this bill, and he never tells her what's in the locker, and obviously he's never gone to get the stuff, whatever it is. So she stops making the payments. Well, you know they have this TV show now uh, about uh, storage locker auction wars where people bid on what's inside yeah, the, yeah. the locker? Some guy bids 50 bucks for whatever's behind the door. Surprise. And he wins and they open the locker and there, of course, are the four dead bodies. Uh, They asked the woman who'd been paying the bill, if you'd known there'd been dead bodies in that locker, what would you have done? She said, oh, I would have kept paying the bill. He wouldn't have killed me. (laughs) I don't know about seasons of darkness. This is decades of darkness. You guys did a great job on this book. The book is called A Season of Darkness by Douglas Jones and Phyllis Goebel. It is available right now wherever fine books are sold. You can get it online from your favorite book seller, whether it's Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Books A Million or Libris or any of those. A Season of Darkness. Thank you very much for being on the program with us today. And good luck.